Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a really interesting entrepreneur, you know, an entrepreneur that went from corporate to intrapreneurship to entrepreneurship. So a little bit of everything. And now he's doing something really interesting around climate change. And I think that we're all very much, you know, going to enjoy what he has to say and quite an inspiring story. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tangui Tufut. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the invite. So originally born in the eastern part of France. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, well, growing in the eastern part of France in, uh, in the 80s uh, probably gives you some perspective about, uh, I would say, uh, how the economy may change over time. I would say the eastern part of France was uh, heavily industrialized. And unfortunately, over the last uh, 30, 40 years, uh, the, the economy has changed drastically. So the impact of, uh, I would say, uh, factories uh, on uh, the production of, uh, of wealth has decreased substantially, replaced by services to some extent. So um, uh, let's say uh, uh, it gives you a perspective of uh, all the challenges you may uh, face if you're not able to uh, keep up with innovation and be able to, uh, to meet, I would say, uh, global challenges. So for you, you know, at least, you know, like in the family, did you have like anyone that was an entrepreneur or, or any type of exposure to small business? Or would you say that this perhaps developed over the course of time? No, my father was a vet. So uh, let's say that for, uh, for I would say, uh, doctors or lawyers, they are quite independent. They have to secure their own revenues. Uh, they are not part of, uh, I would say, a large company. So definitely, uh, I would say uh, such profiles are, entrepreneur in, uh, by, by construction. This is something that uh, uh, is, uh, is true uh, for, for, my, for my family. Uh, but uh, no, uh, I would say uh, uh, there are not so many entrepreneurs uh, in, my, uh, in my family. So in your case, I mean, you ended up going to university and you definitely studied finance and economics, you know, for the most part. So how did you develop that love for numbers? Well, um, I think in France, um, there are a few uh, business schools that uh, would help you, I would say, join very uh, nice companies. So let's say it's a, it's a passport to be able to have like a, 
management role at some point in your career. So um, I think that's uh, definitely uh, something I, I wanted to do, uh, being sure to understand uh, economics to, uh, to be able to adapt also to uh, different uh, uh, challenges. And uh, at the same time, having basically the credibility to be able to, uh, to manage uh, companies at some point in, in time. And in your case, I mean, you, you definitely developed the, the right type of experience before going at it as an entrepreneur because you had on one end the banking side, then the consulting side, and then the bigger kind of like insurance uh, type of um, journey before really getting started with, with your business now. So one of the things that, um, that is very interesting here is the, the consulting part. You know, the consulting part, you know, I see a lot of people that come on the show that really develop that understanding on how you're able to grab a big problem, break it down into smaller problems, and then tackling one after the other to really be successful with whatever you have in front of you. So I guess for you, that consulting experience, what kind of uh, background would you say it gave you to tackle problem solving? I had the, the chance to, to work for uh, Oliver Wyman. So it was a, a global consulting firm. So I actually worked in uh, many different countries in North America, in Africa, in Asia. So, um, and uh, most of the time for um, large insurance companies. So I was able to uh, better understand how to be, uh, how to make money, how to be successful in insurance. So for me, it was a, a good, um, I would say a very good experience and very useful to uh, better understand the, the insurance industry. But um, even if um, this experience was uh, precious, I think the experience within a large insurer was even more important to be able to uh, uh, deep dive and have a, a very clear understanding of uh, the mistakes uh, you should avoid to make in uh, as a startup and also um, uh, all the regulatory hurdles you may face. Uh, I think uh, in uh, large organizations, you may learn a lot about all the rules and all the conventions that make them successful. And if you're able to take a step back and understand that you can break some rules, not all of them, but some of them to make it something better, because what was actually useful 20 years ago may not be, uh, I would say, useful anymore uh, today. Uh, if you're able to, to distinguish basically uh, the lessons that you have to learn to be uh, uh, part of a large organization at the same time, uh, what doesn't make sense, then uh, you may have a chance to disrupt your industry. Now, here for you, I mean, you had a really good insight into the world of entrepreneurship, but doing it without so much risk. I mean, after the consulting experience, you go to AXA and you spent, uh, you know, quite a bit of time with, with AXA. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, at least, uh, what was that, like six years that you were with AXA? Eight, eight years. Eight years, no? I mean, and, on, and during this journey, you had the opportunity of experiencing different uh, aspects of, 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 of the business. And the last one that you did, that was really what is called the intrapreneurship route, which is essentially being an entrepreneur, but under the umbrella of a bigger organization. So in this case for you, tell us a little bit about that experience. What happened there? I think um, in large organizations, of course, you have plenty of resources. You also have the knowledge to be able to, uh, I would say, reach scale relatively quickly. So this is something that uh, is uh, one of the big advantages of large organizations. At the same time, you have more constraints. So definitely, 
you have uh, to generate revenues very quickly too. Uh, it's even more important, I would say, as an intrapreneur compared to an entrepreneur, uh, because uh, CFOs may not be uh, patient enough to, uh, to let the business grow in the long term. They will focus on uh, uh, quick wins and, I would say, uh, short-term results. But at least you have um, colleagues um, around you that uh, can support you and uh, help you, um, I would say, reach the right conclusions. So. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful incubator. Working for a large insurer is definitely a, a good place to, uh, to understand how uh, some projects could fail and how some other projects could actually be a, a big success. So it's definitely a, a, a very um, helpful experience I had in my life. So in, in AXA, you, you developed the Global Parametrics, which is the entrepreneur uh, project that you did. I mean, you build that up to like 30 people and uh, pushing that nicely. So at what point do you realize, hey, I, I think I may want to, you know, branch out and, and do something on my own? I think, um, again, uh, you may face some, um, some frustrations um, as a, a CEO of, um, within a large organization. So the, the freedom to act, of course, is limited. So, uh, and it's very difficult to, um, to combine the best of uh, both worlds. So being both very agile, nimble, and at the same time, being part of a very large family. Some people manage to, uh, to do that, but uh, it's very complex. You need to, uh, uh, to, 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 to change, uh, I would say, your, your mindset quite frequently. Whereas as an external entrepreneur, I would say uh, only your clients and to some extent your investors uh, can change your mind. So um, um, the ability to, to act freely, of course, is a, uh, is uh, more important as an entrepreneur than an entrepreneur. But you don't have the resources, you don't have the knowledge of others. Uh, you are uh, on your own with your co-founders. Uh, that makes a big difference, and that also explains why uh, not so many people move from, uh, I would say, uh, a role of entrepreneur to a role of, uh, of a true entrepreneur. So what was that transition like? At what point do you say, hey, I think I'm going to give my notice today? <laughs> I think uh, it's, a, it's a long process. It depends on uh, what you want to achieve in life. If you, if you project yourself in uh, 10, 15, 20 years and you, you think that you would not be happy um, in your future role that uh, you will have in uh, 15 or 20 years within a large organization, then it's time to think about doing something uh, different. Uh, I think what, um, what is clearly important as an entrepreneur is, is of course, to make sure that uh, you will find uh, in your life some um, uh, uh, colleagues or uh, co-entrepreneurs that will uh, help you to, uh, big, uh, to build something big. And I think uh, at that time, I realized that uh, uh, some people in, uh, in uh, I would say, around me had both the guts and uh, the willingness to do something very innovative and very ambitious. But I would say uh, as soon as you have like the, the resources and the uh, the allies, the friends, the colleagues to achieve that, it's a very important step. And the rest is more like your hard work, uh, adaptation, um, I would say uh, uh, the ability to, uh, uh, to get a hit and uh, keep on uh, moving forward. So it's something that is, uh, is possible. But alone, of course, it's much more uh, challenging. Now, in your case, you, know, you went at it with Descartes underwriting. So uh, tell us about 
how did you think about really like building the team? How did you go about, you know, really tackling it and, and, and going at it with this opportunity? For, for us, um, we, we really want to, uh, to be ambitious and, uh, and to become a, a next-gen corporate insurer. So our clients are large corporations. Usually, uh, um, they have more than uh, half a billion in terms of revenues. Um, it's a global uh, company. So today, we have offices, four offices in the USA, uh, three and soon four offices in Europe, and uh, three offices in APAC. And uh, we wanted to, uh, to be global from day one. So we have uh, today uh, uh, probably around 25 nationalities in the team. Um, and uh, we have the ability actually to attract lots of uh, talents from abroad in Paris. We are lucky to have, uh, um, I would say, uh, visas for uh, tech profiles uh, to, to, to get them very quickly uh, in France. That's a, a kind of unique opportunity if we, uh, if we look at the last 20 or, or 30 years in, in France. Paris is uh, very dynamic. The ecosystem is powerful. So uh, definitely, uh, my first challenge is to find the right people. And I was lucky to be able to, to find them not only in France or in Europe, but across the world. So people from Asia, people from Africa, people from LATAM, uh, people from the USA. And uh, I mentioned that you need to start with your co-founders first. And then the, the big next step is to make sure that you can build the A team, the best potential team uh, you can find in the market and definitely having a, a global reach and the ability just to recruit people not based on their location or uh, I would say their, uh, their language, but just based on the, the ability to code on Python or uh, other, uh, I would say, uh, technical skills. It's, uh, it's a game changer. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired. You don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, with Descartes underwriting, what, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money for the people listening to get it? So we act as an NGA. So basically, we underwrite on behalf of large insurers and reinsurers. Uh, so we work with brokers. In the corporate segments, uh, brokers have uh, 100% of the distribution uh, uh, channel. 
So um, we we uh, we want to become the best allies, and we uh, uh, design innovative insurance covers against natural perils. So it could be against floods, wildfires, against uh, hailstorms, against tornadoes, against uh, uh, typically uh, um, uh, tsunamis or, or earthquakes, and across the world. So um, we we really want to. Uh, innovate and, and provide uh, products with uh, superior, um, I would say, features. So um, as you may know, in the insurance sector, uh, the reputation of, uh, of how we, uh, we serve clients is, is quite poor. Um, we uh, usually, uh, uh, when a corporate client has a claim, it takes in the USA uh, 550 days. Uh, in our case, usually we process a claim within five working days. So it makes a big difference. We need to improve the economics. It's always a big topic about affordability and uh, we uh, we work a lot on making our products more affordable so we, we try to reduce the, the frictional costs related to the expense ratio and of course um, we want to be transparent um, if we look at um, COVID-19 uh, I would say the reputation of the insurance sector was not good prior to, uh, to the pandemic uh, I would say after the pandemic it's even worse so, uh, because there were plenty of debates about uh, uh, should insurers pay or, or should, should they not pay claims, particularly related to business interruptions. So, I think we we have to um, provide very efficient wordings, very clear, I would say, uh, sentences, and, and basically our clients should be able to know if they're covered or if they're not covered. It's something that uh, looks, I would say, uh, I would say obvious uh, in many industries. But today, in the insurance sector, and it's even more the case in the corporate insurance sector, we cannot say that it's transparent, we cannot say that it's uh, uh, cheap, and we cannot say that uh, basically uh, the claim process is a good experience, because it's not. Now, it's uh, pretty interesting here, because how do you go about calculating or, or, or having a better estimate at potential consequences or impact of, of climate change? I mean, that sounds like... Uh, a little bit difficult. So, how do you guys go about, you know, really having a good grasp on on such complex, um, you know, situations? You're right. So, um, I would say the the first step is to move from a stochastic approach. So, basically, looking at uh, historical data. To uh, so move from this approach to uh, a more innovative one based on physics. So, of course, you need to understand what happened in the past. But for example, if you look at wildfires, we may expect lots of wildfires in the Nordics in Europe, so in Norway, in Sweden, and, and Finland. If you look at uh, historical data, it did not happen. So uh, some people may conclude that it's unlikely to happen. But if you measure, for example, the soil moisture, if you measure the wind shear, if you measure temperature, you see that uh, now uh, the underlying drivers behind wildfires are becoming uh, more and more uh, uh, ripe and more and more likely. So um, uh, that's, that's definitely one of the, the first steps, moving from historical, um, an historical approach to a, a forward-looking approach. It requires lots of uh, new data sources. It could be satellites, it could be uh, different sensors. Uh, it requires uh, also uh, new algorithms. Uh, we may have, for example, to use uh, neural networks to um, ensure uh, our clients against wildfires. We will definitely uh, 
have to, to do that uh, because we are using satellite imagery and we're talking uh, sometimes about uh, uh, plantations with more than uh, five or 10 million uh, of hectares, so very large plantations. And, uh, and new technologies are the only way to, um, to do it. I, I could uh, elaborate uh, for hours on, on that point on how to model climate change because it's definitely one of the key topics for us. And uh, this is something that uh, insurers are struggling with. They observe an increase in the frequency of natural catastrophes. It's a factor of uh, four to five over the last 50 to 70 years. It's just the beginning, unfortunately. And uh, looking just at, uh, at the past won't be uh, enough to understand what's, what's happening. And in this case, I mean, uh, an operation like this is quite capital intensive. So how have you guys gone about raising money for this? Yes, yeah, so we, we started with um, a seed. Uh, so back uh, in uh, 2019, uh, so we had uh, 2.5 million USD. Then uh, we reached uh, a bit more than a year later of Series A uh, with uh, 18.5 uh, million USD. And then uh, recently, so we announced that uh, basically uh, uh, earlier this year, um, uh, 120 million USD Series B. Uh, for us, it's important because we, we need a global scale, definitely. Uh, we need to uh, become one of the best, uh, I would say, uh, we need to have the, one of the best teams in the world uh, when we talk about uh, understanding climate change. Um, so um, today we already have uh, 65 people just dedicated to modeling uh, climate risks. And we plan to double uh, the size of the team in the next 12 months. So uh, we will definitely become one of the largest uh, teams in that respect. Uh, we need, of course, to, um, uh, to be able to um, buy uh, different data sources uh, to um, improve our understanding. And we need to build uh, a full stack, basically, uh, um, uh, full stack operations. We need to be able to support our partners through a better, or I would say, a, a policy issuing department. We need to uh, support our partners through a better claim, um, claim ending department. So definitely we need to, uh, to inject technology across all uh, departments um, of, uh, of Descartes. It will take several years to achieve, I would say, uh, what we have in mind. But definitely we have the resources and uh, the, the people to, uh, to achieve that. And so the total amount raised to date has been how much? So in total, we have raised... Um, a bit more than 140 million USD. Got it. Now, in your case, um, you've raised money from from you know all types of investors, from people that are you know from Europe, from other people that have like some roots from the US too. So, when you're thinking about building an operation like this, or for example, like being in Europe, because there's a lot of people that that are probably listening to us that are you know European founders. How should they think about fundraising? I mean, should they think about it globally? from right off the bat, or is that something that maybe you bake in as, as you go? I, I would say it's, um, it depends on the, on the context. Uh, if we look at um, our own history, uh, we had to raise during COVID-19. So um, it was, um, I would say, more challenging in 2020 or 2021 to raise, I would say, from uh, US uh, funds because it was difficult actually just to go to the USA uh, and sometimes impossible. So uh, I would say uh, 
um, if you can tap um, into um, your, I would say your, your local uh, venture capital markets, uh, it's definitely uh, easier and more achievable. When you start growing, I think there is, uh, of course, uh, more and more appetite for, I would say, European tech uh, players uh, from um, uh, both uh, Asian and um, North American uh, investors. Uh, it makes sense to diversify and to, uh, if you want to be uh, to build a global uh, platform, having, uh, I would say, uh, uh, investors from uh, various regions definitely makes sense. So uh, in our case, for example, we have uh, for the latest round uh, two two uh, investors, CIA and uh, and Almamundi, uh, being very strong uh, in Iberia but also in Latam. Uh, we wanted to be more. Uh, efficient and uh, grow faster in Latin America. Of course, having uh, some investors, having uh, a good uh, market knowledge, uh, some uh, contacts on the ground, and I would say uh, some um, feedback about where you should, uh, uh, I would say, uh, launch uh, your products, it, it can uh, be extremely efficient. Uh, but of yeah. course, you have to align uh, the, 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 the nationalities of, um, of, your, of your funds with uh, what you want to achieve globally. And, uh, and we have a, a number of different, uh, I mean, foreigners uh, in, um, in our cap table. And for us, it was the only way again to, uh, to be a global player. Now, in this case, you know, for the people that are listening to get a better understanding on the scope and size of the operation, I mean, how many employees are you guys already and anything else that you would feel comfortable sharing? Well, today we are uh, a bit more than 85 people. We should be uh, something like uh, 130 to 150 by the end of the year. Uh, so uh, many people will join us uh, in the next few weeks, uh, next month, and uh, until the end of the year. Um, we, uh, we have been uh, opening a number of offices uh, in the USA, in, in APAC. Uh, this is something that uh, is a priority for us, again, to we're able to get closer to uh, our brokers and to our, our clients. So this is something that uh, uh, we remain a key priority, building a global, uh, a global company. Um, in terms of uh, top line, so we plan to be above uh, 100 million uh, gross return premiums this year. So what we call the GWP, so that's uh, the key metric uh, in the insurance space. Uh, so we need to, to double the, we, we, uh, reached a bit more than 50 million last year. We plan to double this year, and we need to keep on growing very fast in the next two, three years. But at the same time, we need to be very disciplined. So uh, there is a key uh, uh, metric um, called the, the loss ratio in insurance. So you need to be very fair with your clients. But if your loss ratio is too high, you know that at some point in time, you will struggle to um, convince insurers to uh, support your development. So I think. Uh, uh, when you create uh, an ambitious company, it should be a win-win situation. So of course, your your um, employees should be happy with uh, the company. Your clients should be, uh, I would say, uh, excited about uh, about your products. But all your allies, uh, and typically in our case, we're talking about insurers and reinsurers, should uh, make money and should uh, like to work with you. If you're able to satisfy, I would say, all the stakeholders, then you can really think about building something big. If uh, typically your, your loss ratio is too high, if you're actually uh, 
asking your reinsurers to systematically subsidize your premiums. Of course, at some point in time, the discussions will stop and you will be in a situation where actually growth is not possible. So um, that's really uh, something we have to keep in mind. Uh, we will keep on growing, but we need to uh, do it in a very sustainable manner and please our clients, our employees, uh, all our partners, brokers, insurers, reinsurers, asset managers, and of course, our investors. Uh, everyone should be, um, should be uh, happy and thrilled by uh, what we are building. Now, imagine, Tangui, that you, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, today it's 50% Europe, 50% the rest of the world in terms of revenues. I think in a, in a number of years, it could be more uh, focused on North America and Asia. I still expect uh, growth to come from North America and Asia. It would be definitely above uh, half a billion in terms of uh, GWP. So this is something uh, we, we have in, in mind. So in the long term, we should be definitely uh, above half a billion. It should be, I would say, uh, uh, the number one uh, in terms of uh, uh, climate risks, in terms of how we understand and how we are able to um, innovate in the face of climate change because it's uh, one of the greatest challenges of humanity. So um, insurers have a big role to play. And today, it should, uh, I think the, the, the role should be uh, definitely uh, uh, more ambitious. It's not about uh, only uh, investments. Investments are important. Communication is important. Awareness is important. But uh, definitely, there are many things that uh, should, should be uh, provided by insurers, and we want to work on that. And then I would say uh, uh, we need, uh, of course, uh, uh, to be the preferred uh, employer for uh, all PhDs, data scientists, uh, software engineers and DevOps uh, looking for a job in the climate and weather space. Uh, because when we talk about uh, insure tech or, or just the tech industry, we're talking about being able to attract the best talents in the market. And again, we are in a position to be able to attract people from Latin, from North America, from Africa, from all over the world. So, Tango, imagine I was able to bring you back in time and put you into a time machine. And you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, with that younger Tangui, and ask yourself one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think the, the number one advice is um, making sure to find the right people you want to work with, because the, the first years will be extremely tough. If you're not alone and if you can trust other people to uh, guide you, to challenge you, then I think uh, uh, a big, uh, I would say, it's a big uh, uh, chunk of the, the work done. So um, finding the right people to, um, to, to start the company with, that's probably the, the number one advice I would give uh, to, to myself. And for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to get in touch and say hi? Uh, definitely, uh, it could be on LinkedIn or otherwise uh, uh, through the, the company's website, so uh, DescartesOnTheWriting.com. Amazing. Well, Tangui, thank you so much for being part of the Dealmaker Show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, 
or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.